Uh, this morning we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut, a corner, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king. And when Saul looked back behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, the day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid your, you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of God. Thanks, Matt. Let's open in a word of prayer before we turn to the word of the Lord. Um, Lord, some great songs this morning, some great truths about who you are and what you've done for us and our gratitude to you. Our humble acceptance of what you've done on our behalf. Lord, be glorified, we pray. And uh, Lord, I want to pray again for our sister Joanne as she's still waiting for uh, her surgery. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be with her. Um, as we stopped and we prayed uh, here in the service about um, ways that we could share how you've done 
wonderful, amazing things for us. Lord, would you do some of those things for Joanne even now? I pray that you would meet her in her uh, loneliness and her waiting and her need, in her weakness and her pain. And Lord, that she would see and recognize your care for her so that she has to tell other people that, that your goodness is so good to her. So Lord, would you please do that for our sister, we pray. And Lord, we also want to pray for uh, Daniel Holmquist again and, and ask that you would do similar things for him. Would you sustain and work in him? Lord, you've provided um, the chemotherapy and those things to really keep the, the cancer in check. Uh, Lord, we pray also for his uh, um, surgery site hernias that he's, he's developed. Lord, um, would you continue to be with Daniel and his family and strengthen and heal him? Uh, have mercy on him, we pray, and, uh, and meet him where he is. Lord, I want to pray also for the Wests as they're traveling this week, that you would go with them. Lord, would you show them what it is that, um, that you have for them in their future, what they're uh, exploring now. Uh, Lord, make it clear to them what, what your desire and what your plan is. And Lord, uh, thinking of people traveling, we want to pray for the Racies and their future transition. Uh, Lord, would you um, be with them in the finishing up of the Lancaster house and the sale of that, their move, their packing, all the things that have to happen when, when somebody PCSs. And Lord, for their uh, arrival in, um, in Ohio at Wright Pat, Lord, find them a, a good church that would support and love and encourage them in you, that would help them to grow in grace and go with them, And we ask, um, and, uh, and your, your mercy and your love for them. And uh, Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to this story from um, David's life again? And show us what it is, Holy Spirit, that you've inspired to be in this passage that we need to hear this morning. Uh, Lord, open our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, be big in, in the message this morning. Um, I pray that, uh, that David would be that echo of great things to come that are in you. Uh, bless the uh, preaching and the, the hearing of your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So in March of this year, uh, gunmen shot their way into Covenant School in Nashville. They killed three adults and three nine-year-old children uh, before the police finally killed the shooter. Um, the shooter was a former school, uh, student at the school. Um, there is an unconfirmed story that the parents of the children raised money to pay for the shooter's funeral. Uh, it's unconfirmed. I, I was trying to track it down, and, and it's just one person said they heard from one of the parents that they did that. Could be true, maybe maybe it's not. I, I think just kind of getting the sense of the thing, maybe the parents just didn't want that to be public. And this person on Twitter who said it shouldn't have. But the response was pretty strong. It is amazing that the parents would, would behave like that, that they would pay for the funeral of the person who killed their children, traumatized their children. Um, there's a more sure story that, that uh, about a shooting as well in 2017, a young white man joined a Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And if you can't tell from that name, it's a predominantly black church in, uh, in um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. The young man joined the Bible study and he sat for a while listening, began to argue with them about some interpretations of scriptures, and then he stood up and started shooting. He killed nine people. It was pretty terrible. He did it because he's a white supremacist. When he appeared in court, uh, the daughter of one of the victims, 70-year-old uh, Ethel Lance, said, You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you, and I forgive you. 
stories like that could be repeated. What's remarkable, the, the thing that people just are bowled over about is when somebody says, I forgive you, I extend mercy to you. That, that gets the world's attention. There is something so deeply ingrained in us that mercy shines. And this morning, as we turn to chapter 24, and we continue this, this trail of David on the run from Saul, we're going to learn something really important about mercy. The story is pretty straightforward, pretty simple. It starts with David and Saul in the cave. Then it goes to David's speech and Saul's response. Fairly simple outline. Let me cover it real quick, and then, then we'll turn to what is being taught in this lesson. So it says when uh, it starts when Saul returned from following the Philistines. You remember last chapter, the Ziphites had turned David over. They said, hey, David's here. So Saul came and was pursuing him. He was about to close in and get David when a messenger came and said, hey, the Philistines have invaded. You've got to come and deliver the, the country. And so Saul turns and he goes and he fights the Philistines. So apparently that's over. Uh, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he chased him off. Um, it, he was told David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. En Gedi is south of Israel. It, it's in the southern portion of Israel around the Dead Sea. And that area is littered with caves. So the Dead Sea Scrolls came from that area. And when you look at catalogs, it says which cave they came out of. There's just a ton of caves in this area. So that's where David is, is he's in the wilderness of En Gedi. It's dry, it's arid, it's rocky, but there's a lot of caves. And him and his men are hiding out in a cave somewhere. So Saul takes 3,000 of the best soldiers and decides to go after David again. Um, and so while they're searching for him, they're, they're probably on his trail. They're, they must be close because Saul walks into the very cave that David and his men are hiding in. That, that's pretty remarkable, but it's, hopefully it's not that remarkable because they're supposed to be finding this guy. So they should be pretty close. But of all the caves available, Saul just happens to pick that one. Now, when I thought of this story, before I did some research on this, you know, I'm thinking of a cave and it's, you know, like a, a cave we picture in TV. It's not very big, you know, small. How could David and 600 of his men hide in there? How could they sneak up on Saul? How could, you know, that these caves are much more elaborate, much larger. They can be very small. They can be huge. This must have been a big one because David and his men are hiding in it. And Saul comes in and they don't, he doesn't notice that they're there. So it must have been a pretty elaborate cave. Um, Saul comes in, it says, to relieve himself. That's, that's an English translation of an idiom. The idiom in Hebrew is to cover his feet. That's literally what it says, is he came in to cover his feet. So if you think about covering his feet, he's, he's in robes and he's going to squat down and the robes would cover his feet. So I think maybe that's where it came from. Apparently he took his robe off because he didn't want to get it soiled and he set it off to the side and he goes about his business. David's men say, man, this is the moment. This is it, David. Saul's been pursuing you, and now here is the day of which the Lord told you, behold, I give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. This is it, David. Go get him. He is in the most vulnerable position imaginable. His men are not near him. He's, he's busy. He's not going to notice if you walk up and kill him. And so David arose, and it says he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So instead of killing Saul, he finds his robe off to one side, and he cuts off a piece and kind of sneaks back. But then it says David's heart struck him. He feels like what he's done is wrong. And he tells his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So this is where we get that idea of Messiah. That's what the word in Hebrew is, is Messiah is anointed. 
And so when we say Jesus is the Messiah, what we're saying is he's a king. He's the one who's chosen to be the king. And that comes from David's own words. So David persuades his men, I'm not going to kill him, lets him go. Saul finishes his business and he leaves the cave. That's, that's Saul and David in the cave. What comes next is David's speech. So after Saul leaves, David arises and he steps out and he calls to Saul. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth. He's, he's paying homage to the man who's trying to kill him, who has been trying to kill him personally and through proxies for quite a while. Remember, he's thrown spears at him. He sent men to his house. This is the man, and he bows down, and he says, why do you listen to the words of people who say, David seeks your harm? Why do you think I'm after you? I'm not. And he says, he holds up that piece of, of Saul's robe, and he says, look, I, I, you were in my hand. I could have done to you what I wanted in the cave, but instead, I would never do that. And why? Because I fear the Lord. Because I fear God and he has anointed you king, it's his responsibility, it's his position to take you out as king. And so I'm not going to do that. And I feel bad that I cut off the corner of your robe. I shouldn't have done that even. And so what he's telling him is, I'm not going to do evil to you. I'm, I'm not going to repay you the way you think I should. May the, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David has been anointed king. He has been told he's going to be king, and he refuses to, to rise up and kill the man and take the position. He is trusting the Lord, and he's saying, God, judge between us, and there'll be a day when I ascend to the throne, but I'm not going to be the one that does it. So that's the picture. And then he says, may the Lord therefore be the judge and give sentence between you and me and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David is announcing to Saul exactly what he's doing. I'm, I could have killed you, and I didn't. I would never kill you because you are the Lord's anointed, and I'm going to respect you. I respect your office. I respect you. I'm not going to do it. So how does Saul respond then? Saul responds. He, he, he turns, and he hears David's voice. He's apparently so far off, he can't really see him that well, but he yells out, is that your voice, my son David? Suddenly, he's tender to him. My son, David, not my adversary, not, not the one who, he'll, who I hate. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul now is cut to the heart. This is a tender, emotional encounter between these two. And Saul goes on and he says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid good, whereas I have repaid evil. And you have de declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Saul is cut to the heart. You have showed me kindness. I have been pursuing you. I've been angry at you. I've been trying to kill you. And you had the opportunity and you showed me goodness. And so he says in verse 20, now behold, I know that you will surely be king. Now, I don't think it occurred to him at this moment, oh, wow, wait, he's going to be king. Because remember last chapter, when Jonathan met him, Jonathan said, behold, I know you're going to be king, and my father knows too. So I think what, what Saul is saying here is, this is just one more thing confirming it. You're a better man than I am, and I know you're going to be king. And so Saul is, is again, grateful for what David's done. He says, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my, father or, uh, out of my father's house. You cut off the corner of my robe. Don't cut off the corner of my people. Don't cut me out of this. 
So in other words, when you ascend to the throne, don't wipe me out. Let me at least have some place there. And so David swore to Saul, that's how it's going to go. That's what I'm going to do. And then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. So Saul probably went back to Gibeah, north into uh, the tribe of Benjamin. And it says David went into the stronghold. The stronghold we've seen a couple of times is in the woods. It's natural outcroppings that are easily defensible. It's not you know, necessarily an erected building. And so that's it. That's, that's the story. What are we supposed to get from this? Well, what we get from this is God gave Saul into David's hand. The word hand appears 10 times in this chapter. It is a major theme. And you remember last chapter when we talked about hand, I said that is to be under somebody's control, authority, and power. Is to be given into your hand. The word hand appears here again 10 times. There's another word that appears more than that, though, and that's Yahweh. So what's going on here? The two words that are repeated most are Yahweh and hand, God and his authority, his rule, his, his power. And I think that's the picture that we're getting in this, in this chapter is God is in charge of this. Saul could have gone into any cave. He could have wound up anywhere, but he wound up in David's cave. And, and David could have killed him, but he fears the Lord. And this is God ruling over all of these things. It is God's kingdom that David will establish, not his own. So David fears harming Saul because Saul is the Lord's anointed. This is, this is foundational. What's going on here is foundational about the kingdom of God, which is David, right? David is the man after God's own heart. David is the king that God said, I'm going to pick a king. I'm going to pick a king for me. That's God's kingdom versus the kingdom of the world. That's Saul. Saul picked the people, picked the king for the people, and then God rejected him. And so I think it paints a picture of this, these two kingdoms that are going on in the world. Did God establish the kingdom of man? Did he make rulers and, and authorities and powers in the world? Absolutely he did. Romans 13, he, there is no authority except that's established by God. So why is uh, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, because God established him there. God establishes these rulers. Why is there a ruler in Great Britain? Because God established them. So God establishes the kingdom of man, but that doesn't mean that that's exactly what he wants, nor does it mean that that's what's going to endure. Instead, God also establishes the kingdom of God, pictured in David. And the kingdom of God is in the world, but it's not ascendant yet. It's, it's waiting for that time until God says he will take out these kingdoms and establish his king on the throne. So what's going on in the meantime is David shows Saul mercy. The kingdom of God shows the kingdom of man mercy. So I think we have to ask the question, what is mercy? What do we mean by mercy in this context at least? Wrestled with us a little bit. Here's a definition I think I'm okay with. <laughs> I hope so since I wrote it. Mercy is voluntarily doing good to someone you have a lawful advantage over. So to show mercy to somebody is to show voluntarily to do good to them when you have legal authority or legitimate authority over them, legitimate advantage over them. So mercy is to do good to somebody. And, and it is to do good from a position of power or authority or, or advantage over them. So think, for example, of um, the um, Lazarus and the rich man, that parable that Jesus told. Lazarus was poor. He was disadvantaged. He was covered in sores. He had no means of income. He would go to the rich man's house and beg for food. 
the, the rich man had a huge advantage over, um, over Lazarus. He had power, he had money, he had authority, he had food. And so he could have voluntarily provided for and taken care of Lazarus, but he chose not to. It's not like Lazarus could go to court and say, hey, this rich guy owes me. He has this debt that he has to pay me, and I'm suing him because Lazarus was totally at disadvantage. He, he didn't have anything. And so when they both die and they go to the afterlife, the, Lazarus is laying in Abraham's bosom. He is being comforted, and the rich man's in hell because he didn't show mercy to Lazarus, because it, not because he didn't do this thing, but because that was the nature of his heart. He was more interested in himself. He could have shown mercy, be, not, not because he was required to, but because he wanted to. So that's, that's what mercy looks like. Um, there's a great quote that I think describes mercy really well. It's from William Shakespeare from his play, The Merchant of Venice. I gotta set it up a little bit for you. The Merchant of Venice was a man named Antonio. And he borrows a large sum of money from a Jewish moneylender named Shylock. And he's going to pay him back, but he owns a couple of ships. And when the ships return with goods, then he'll be able to repay Shylock. Unfortunately, he loses his ships. His ships are lost at sea. He can't repay. And so Shylock says, you have to meet the, the conditions of the, the, the um, contract that we signed. I want a pound of flesh. That's where we get that term, pound of flesh. Literally, he says, I want a pound of your flesh. In other words, I'm going to kill him because he can't repay me. And so he goes to court. The real hero of the story of the Merchant of Venice is a woman named Portia. And Portia disguises herself as a man. I don't, uh, Shakespeare did that a lot. Women would disguise, disguise themselves as men. And she pretends to be a lawyer, and she goes to court. And one of the climaxes of her speech is when she's trying to convince Shylock of something important. And this is when she says, the quality of mercy is not strained. Perhaps you've heard that phrase too. Now I got to explain it a little bit because language shifts over time. The quality of mercy is not strained. The quality of mercy doesn't mean how pure the mercy is. It is the, the, the nature, the attribute of mercy, that quality of mercy that, that someone could exhibit. That quality is not strained. Now, when we hear strained, we think stretched to the point of almost breaking. It's, it's under stress. It's under, under trial. That's not what Shakespeare meant. And if, when I read the rest of the quote, you'll understand that doesn't fit the context. What Shakespeare meant by strained was constrained, restricted, limited. So the quality of mercy, the, the attribute, the exercise of mercy is not limited to some people. The quality of mercy is not strained. Portia goes on. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute in, to awe and in majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But, but mercy is above that sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. An earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. 
So let me translate a little bit. That's, that's kind of old English stilted way of saying it. The quality of mercy is not limited to some people. It drops as gentle as the rain. I love that phrase. It is the mightiest in the mightiest. The person who has the most authority, the most power, the most grandeur over somebody else, when they extend mercy, that makes mercy even more mighty. It makes it more beautiful. Kings have power. They rule through fear. That's the scepter is the symbol of their power. But they're most like God when they rule with mercy and justice rather than just on legal power. It is an attribute of God himself. God himself shows mercy. And so she says, therefore, Jew, though justice be your plea, though you're seeking what is owed to you, what, what you should have, consider mercy. Because we pray for mercy, and therefore we should show mercy. Now, tragically, her plea goes unanswered. Shylock demands his pound of flesh from Antonio. But Portia is brilliant, as she is beautiful. And her final plea is this. You know what, Shylock? The contract says you are entitled to a pound of flesh, and a pound of flesh you shall have. But you have no claim on even one drop of blood. So if you can take your pound of flesh and not shed a drop of blood, then it's yours. So that's her, her brilliant legal strategy in the end. But what she said about mercy as she's appealing to Shylock, please have mercy, I think is really instructive. It, it is mightiest in the mightiest. That's where we see it the most. So David, having this opportunity to lay his hand on Saul and kill him, shows not just mercy, but a very mighty mercy because Saul knows it. He said, you're more righteous than I am. You, you have a legitimate claim to kill me. I have unrighteously been chasing you, pursuing you, trying to kill you. It would be within your rights to kill me as a means of self-defense. But you chose not to. And so that's, that's what Saul means when he says that, um, that he is more righteous. He recognizes this. And so what do we get from all of this? How do we pull all this together? Where does this all go? Well, if we're looking at the kingdom of God in the person of David and the kingdom of the world in the person of Saul, what we see, what, one of the important things we learn about the kingdom of God is mercy is one of its central attributes. To extend mercy, isn't that the nature of the kingdom of God that we live in now? What's our commission? What are we told to do? Jesus told us, go to all the nations and preach the gospel, make disciples. And, and that gospel is very simple. You have, you have sinned far worse than you can imagine. And your sin is far more repugnant to God than you can possibly uh, calculate. And yet, because God loves people, he has sent his son into the world to redeem sinners. God himself will take the burden of your punishment on himself. All you have to do is say, that's all I'm trusting in. That's the message. Is that not mercy? And is that not mightiest? Because nobody is more important than God. Nobody should be less sinned against than God. And so when God extends mercy in this kingdom, it's huge. He, he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's the mightiest of mercies. And he's commissioned us. He's told us, go now into all the nations and preach this gospel. Show mercy to everyone. So when we consider in, in our, our setting, in our place, what does mercy look like? For us, number one, it means preaching the gospel because God is the one offended. 
God is the one who's reconciled. Mercy is the mightiest when God forgives. And so we must preach the gospel. We have to. That is to extend mercy to other people. That is the nature of the kingdom you live in. You're in this kingdom because God has shown you mercy. Now go and show mercy to other people. So we can't not preach the gospel if we're being faithful to the kingdom of God. But that's not all. That's, that's not the end of it. We don't just preach the gospel and drop it. Because what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. To tell someone Jesus died that they might be able to love the Lord, that is mercy. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. And the way that's pictured in the New Testament is extending mercy to people who don't deserve it. The, the, um, the Good Samaritan is an example of that. The Samaritan comes upon a man who was in the wrong side of town, who got beaten up and robbed, and he extended mercy to him. He had no legal obligation to care for this man. He had agency over this man. He had authority. He had, he had a better position because he could have just left him. He wasn't obliged to this man at all. He was the wrong race. He was a Jew, and this is a Samaritan. They didn't get along. And so he extends this great mercy, picks the man up, takes him to an end, pays for him. Out of his own pocket, he's paying for this man's care. That's an example. And Jesus said, that's what mercy looks like. We have to care for, we have to provide for people. That's what we do as we're preaching the gospel. It's not an exclusion to. It doesn't mean just being nice to people is preaching the gospel. We have to have both of those things together. And we're doing it because of mercy. And, and it's because of the mercy that you've received. So what is the, where's the power to do this? Where do I have the power to extend mercy? <laughs> I don't want to extend mercy. It's inconvenient. Well, Paul or Peter explains that in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, for this, or for to this you have been called. What's your calling, Christian? For this. This you have been called because Jesus also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no, no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That's mercy. He had the authority, he had the power to call down a legion of angels and wipe those people out. And instead, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. Our, our power, our, our ability, our hope in extending mercy to other people comes because we're trusting ourselves to him who just judges justly. You can't lose in being merciful because God is aware of it. Peter continues, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Immediately he preaches the gospel. There's the gospel. Why can you be merciful to other people? Because the gospel. Because God has been merciful to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like. So how do we practice that? How do we do that on a regular basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis? Well, first of all, you have to know that mercy looks different in different situations. It's going to play differently in different situations. For example, there were people who came to Jesus, and his response was, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has, by your faith, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And that was it. 
That was all he did for them. That was, he just forgave them. But there were other people who it was a little more complicated. When the, the lawyer, the young, uh, rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do to, be, to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't go, well, your sins are forgiven, go. You came to the right person, you asked the right question. He, he knew exactly what was going on in this man's heart. And so he says, simple, go sell everything and give it to the poor, then come follow me. So mercy in one person is you're forgiven. Mercy in another person is you've got to confront your sin first. You can't just follow me and add me on to that. It's, it's got to be all. So mercy, when we're extending mercy to people, be careful. You have to use some wisdom. It, it's going to look different in different situations. So one of the things I think of immediately when, when thinking of mercy is, is the people standing beside the road with signs says, hungry, anything helps, God bless. It would be really easy to hand them $10 and go, go be well and fed. That might not be mercy. If this person is addicted to alcohol, to drugs, to sex, to whatever it is, handing them $10 might be adding gasoline to the fire. That might not be the best answer. It might be exactly the right answer. It might be exactly what this person needs. Difficult to tell. So, so be careful with mercy. But don't lose. Don't think, I can't extend mercy because I'm going to lose. You'll never lose by being merciful, even if you're taken advantage of, even if that, that $10 goes to waste. It, it's not a bad thing to, to extend mercy in that way. And so as Christians, what we're called to do is we're called to a kingdom that rests in mercy, a kingdom that is enveloped in mercy, that is God's mercy to the world. And we're called to extend that mercy through preaching the good news of the gospel and by caring for people, by providing for them, by, by meeting their needs, because the two fit together. It's, it's always a question of, well, if, can I just preach the gospel and that's enough? Maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe you don't have the context with this person and, and preaching the gospel is the best you can do, but it might also be that they have a legitimate need that needs to be met. Being able to meet that need is, is tricky. It requires wisdom, it requires intelligence, it, it requires connection with the person, more than just seeing him on a corner with a sign that says, God bless. It's, it's really hard. It, it's hard for us in this context because there is so much homelessness in the valley. How do we meet that? How, how do we extend mercy to that? And I don't have all the answers. I'm not positive. All I know is it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be complicated when we do it. And so when, when we say that we're in the kingdom of God now, that we're waiting, another question comes up, why is God delaying? Why is he taking so long? Why, if he's extended mercy to us, wouldn't it have been mercy for Jesus just to, to be crucified, rise again and go, that's it, it's over. New heavens, new earth. Why did he choose to, to wait this long? I don't know. <laughs> God. God does things for so many reasons, so many, comp he knows everything. He knows everything that has happened, everything that will happen, everything that could happen. And so when he chooses to do something, it's for more reasons than I can possibly comprehend. From my narrow little view, my little, my little window into what he's thinking, I think the reason that he's delaying is not because he wants his people to suffer. Why did, he, why did David have to roam in the, in the wilderness for so long? Not because Dave, God wanted David to suffer, it's because of God's mercy. Why is Jesus delaying his return? Because of God's mercy. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He wants everyone to come to repentance. 
And so he's taking his time and he's being very purposeful and very slow. And his return will come when it's right. In the meantime, we're in the wilderness and we're suffering and we're facing persecution and opposition and sin and all of these things are right against us. But we need to remember that in the midst of this, this is the kingdom of God and it's baked in mercy. It is run through with mercy. And so God delays for mercy. Many of us were not saved from a very early age. We, we had, many of us had periods of real debauchery. Aren't you glad God was merciful then and slow and at the right time came to you and brought you the gospel? That's the nature of the kingdom. That's what we're seeing with David being struck to the heart that he took his hand against God's anointed. That's not the nature of the kingdom that I should do that. I, the nature of the kingdom is to extend mercy to the one who's persecuting me. Extend mercy to those who are in opposition. And so as we engage the world, as we live our lives, remember mercy. Mercy is extending goodness to someone you have advantage over. Advantage in position, money, employment, social standing, good looks. Nah, that's not us. Um, whatever it is, whatever advantage we have over somebody else, it could be extending mercy to that person when they least expect it, when they least deserve it. It's simply because this is the nature of our kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful, um, eternally grateful, impossible to repay our gratitude for the mercy that you showed us. The mercy that you extended to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you took our sin upon yourself so that we could be in right relationship with you and with your Father and with the Holy Spirit and with each other. And Lord, we didn't deserve it. And you certainly had advantage over us, and you put that advantage aside so that we could be benefited. And Lord, how can we ever repay? Lord, would you cause us to walk in those same steps and, and to follow after our Master in extending mercy to those whom mercy is due? And Lord, I pray most importantly that you'd give each of us wisdom and understanding and insight to know what mercy in any given situation looks like because it doesn't look the same every time. It's complicated. But Lord, we trust you and we know that you'll lead and you'll provide. And Lord, when we overstep our bounds, you'll, you'll pierce our hearts as well. You'll strike us to the heart as you did with David. Lord, the, the quality of mercy is not strained. You, you can have it shown through any of us. Would you show mercy to the world through our little church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.